It was the middle of the night two weeks ago. Wake up, there's some man trying to hit us with a hammer. Brutally attacked with a blunt instrument and a knife. Been beaten on the head with a hammer. That very moment, I just about stopped breathing. Bennett's family was brutally attacked. I was in a coma. A very brutal, horrific scene. I knew she was dead. I, I just knew. You know, they were good people. Why did, you know, what did they do wrong? We have no hard suspects at this time. But it's, it's always there. That the guy is probably deceased. It was comforting to think this person was dead. The hammer man, whatever you want to call it. It's always there in the back of my mind. Every day in all these years. It haunted the families and the victims to the core. I had a lot of nightmares. You know, the fear that we lived with all these years, we always wondered if he was still out there because he would know who we were, but we wouldn't know who he was. It's been over 34 years. He's known, but he, we just don't have his name. The desert floor crunches beneath her feet. Certain way to come down here. It's an oppressively hot summer day in Tucson as she moves toward the opening under a bridge spanning a four-lane road. Heat radiates off the nearby pavement. See the shopping cart, the couch is still there. And then that metal thing is what I put the blankets up on to kind of block from people that would walk by so they wouldn't see me chilling on the couch or if I wanted to change or something. It's a bridge she spent six months living beneath in a section of suburban northwest Tucson that is home to a medical center, a supermarket, tracked homes, and swaths of open desert. I don't know if you want to go in all the way. It's a five-minute walk from the methadone clinic she'd visit daily, trying to fend off the demons of addiction. If I wanted to change, then I would just like... You know, drape it a little bit further. Those are blankets that we put on the floor so we don't have to walk in the sand. In the gloom beneath the bridge, the sounds of tires on blacktop fade away. Uh, sleeping bags, the teddy we had up under the carts and stuff because uh, the javelinas, you know, obviously all the rocks we had here that we built up so that they wouldn't come around here, you know. And, um, yeah, so that's basically it. She lived under this bridge for months, walked these streets every day. Did anyone notice her? Did anyone see the slender woman with the sleeves of brightly colored tattoos down both arms? The woman with a pronounced hitch in her gait, each step with her right foot raising her body up a little higher than each step with her left. A woman not yet 40, with a sweetness about her and a scarred face, living on the streets. Did anyone wonder, how did she end up here? I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. Welcome to Blame, the fear all these years. I was a news junkie as a kid. There's a picture of me trying to read the newspaper when I was two years old. So maybe it was destiny that I'd grow up to be a reporter. Over the past three decades, I've pursued every kind of story you can imagine. But most of that time was spent on the cops and courts beat, where you encounter the absolute worst in life like the guy who kidnapped and killed a five-year-old girl, tossing her body along a road in the foothills as though it was a piece of trash, or the teenager who murdered two women and didn't care that the wrong man spent years in prison, or the convict who walked away from a drug treatment center, broke into a home across the street, and stabbed and raped a young woman, each a horrible crime that devastated a family. And yet, nothing like the horror that unfolded inside a split-level home on a frigid night in January 1984. Very worst day. That's Connie Bennett. She's in her mid-80s now, but she needs only a few words to describe that snowy Monday that's burned into her memory. Just 
unfathomable. Connie married young and had five children, including a son, Bruce, right in the middle. She was divorced by the time she was 30. And for 15 years, I was single, raising the kids by myself. And I worked at the telephone company all those years. And um, then in 1975, I met Ernie Large at work. And we worked at Western Electric, and we started going out. So I married him in 75. Ernie had five kids of his own, including Deborah, his oldest daughter. Connie is telling this story as she sits in the shade of a towering evergreen on her property west of Denver. And I can think of only one thing. It almost seems like a, your own version of the Brady Bunch. Yeah, people used to call us that, but, uh, you know, combining two big families <laughs> uh, it's not that easy either. <laughs> Before long, Connie's son Bruce and Ernie's daughter Deborah fell in love. Very wonderful girl, very she was my stepdaughter and my daughter-in-law. Okay. So, but yeah, so before she and Bruce, I guess, fell in love, they uh -huh. were step-sister and brother. That's correct. And they married in 76. And uh, then he joined the Navy, and they went to Hawaii. They were, he was stationed first in uh, San Diego for basic training, and then they shipped him over to Honolulu, and so Bruce and Deborah lived over there for uh, four years. Bruce and Deborah had two daughters. Melissa was seven and Vanessa was three when they bought a new home in Colorado. It was early 1984, and the Denver metro area was a community of contrasts and a community in transition. With a population pushing a half million, the Mile High City was experiencing a renaissance that would remake downtown. Vast parking lots left by the urban renewal demolition of the 1960s and 70s gave way to shiny new high-rises. The Republic Plaza, the U.S. West Tower, the United Bank Tower, more popularly known as the Cash Register Building. Surrounding Denver was a cluster of suburbs that grew rapidly in the decades after World War II, communities that more than a million people called home. The largest, Aurora, was where Bruce and Deborah Bennett bought a new split-level home on East Center Drive in a neighborhood so new there were hardly any trees on the block. It was a mile east of the Aurora Mall, a couple blocks from an elementary school in Parks, the ideal place to raise their young family. It was a new area out there, brand new houses, at the very edge of town at that time. On Sunday evening, January 15, 1984, Connie, along with other family members, gathered at Bruce and Deborah's new home for an early celebration of Melissa's eighth birthday, which was a couple days away. Outside, the temperature dipped into the single digits and snow powdered the ground. When Connie headed home around nine that night, the garage door was open, but she thought nothing of it. Barely 12 hours after leaving that birthday celebration, Connie was at work when her phone rang. Bruce and Deborah both worked for my brothers at that time in the furniture business, and they worked downtown Denver, in the old lower, lower downtown Denver. And when they didn't show up for work that day, my brother's secretary called me and said, well, Bruce and Deborah haven't shown up, and we're worried about them. They haven't called, because that's not normally what they would do. I sat there for a little while, and then I said, uh, I just had the feeling I needed to go check on them, which wasn't far from where I worked. 
I told the secretary next to me, I'm going to go check on my kids. There's something wrong. So I went out there, and that's what I found. What she found dominated newspaper front pages and TV newscasts for days. Police say that sometime between 9 last night and early this morning, the Bennett family was brutally attacked with a blunt instrument and a knife, probably this one found in the snow covering their front lawn. Dead are 27-year-old Bruce Bennett, his 26-year-old wife Deborah, and one of their two daughters, 8-year-old Melissa. She and her mother were found in their bedrooms. A coroner says at least one of them, Melissa, appears to have been sexually assaulted. Bruce Bennett was found lying near a stairwell. Police say all of them were wearing their sleeping clothes. Neighbors, Melissa's school principal, friends, they all felt the shockwaves. Four days ago, they were in my house. They bought this house only about uh, three, four weeks ago. They're good people. Huh? I don't understand what happened. I know that she was an excellent student. She cared about the other kids in her classroom. The teacher cared about her very much. And uh, I know she was planning a birthday party for uh, tomorrow with her mother and with a teacher. Tracy was supposed to go to a birthday party there Friday night. But, you know, I guess she can't now. Police had few clues and no murder weapon. Just a coroner's chilling opinion. The killer used a claw hammer. A week after the murders, the people who loved Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa gathered at a funeral mass to say goodbye. People began arriving by 9.30. Friends, relatives, many others from the Aurora community touched by the tragedy of last week. Others came to lend support to close family members struggling to go on. Plainclothes Aurora police were also there as a precaution and for special surveillance. Shortly before 10, the caskets of Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa were brought into the church by Buckley Air Guard base officers. Bruce was a staff sergeant in the reserves there. One of the pallbearers, Ernest Large, was a brother-in-law. Inside, Father Robert O'Graff told those gathered, death is a mystery and a tragedy, and that all shared in the same questions. Why did it have to happen? But he continued, there are many things we do know, that life for those who are faithful, he said, does not end, it only changes that Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa had finished their pilgrimage on Earth and now enjoy eternal life and happiness that no one can take away. Shortly after 11, the caskets were brought out to be transported to Fort Logan Cemetery. At the close of the service, Deborah's brother, Larry, tearfully thanked all those who had supported them during this past week. Over that week, it was easy to forget something. Not everyone found in the house that morning was dead. As her family buried her parents and sister, doctors at Children's Hospital fought to stabilize three-year-old Vanessa. It's possible that she could be left with significant permanent injury. It's too early to tell. It was a different era. There was no HIPAA, no restrictions on what information could be released about a patient. Vanessa was the victim of several blows to the right front side of her head and both upper and lower jaws. After yesterday's reconstructive surgery, she underwent a CAT scan this afternoon. And the results show no uh, blood clot, which uh, would be a uh, indication for further surgery. Uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, swelling uh, inside the head. And so white-coated doctors caring for Vanessa met almost daily with reporters to update her condition. Treatment will be uh, medical management, which will consist of, uh, of breathing for her with a uh, breathing machine. We are monitoring the pressure inside the head, and uh, we want to take steps so that the pressure doesn't get to an excessive level, which can cause serious, serious long-term problems. If we can keep the pressure down, uh, she, should, she should do well. 
One evening, about 20 members of Bruce and Deborah's extended family gathered at the hospital to meet with reporters. It was an emotionally wrenching scene. We're concerned for everybody too. Please, please help find these people so nobody else has to go through this. But there was a moment of hope provided by Connie. NASA is making such good progress. And I think it's all the prayers and, uh, and the support that uh, she's getting here at the hospital. And I, she's going to be okay. We thank God. In time, though, the daily updates on Vanessa's condition slowed. She was out of the hospital and home about six weeks after the attack, in time for her fourth birthday. But as the investigation went cold, Vanessa slowly faded from the public consciousness. Suddenly, a decade passed. Now 13, she attends middle school in the metro area, takes piano and dance lessons, and plays trumpet in the school band. Vanessa still has a shunt that surgeons placed in her head to drain fluid. She's a little weak on her left side. Her grandmother tries to make her life as normal as possible. She often says, other kids have normal families. I wish I had a normal family with a mom and a dad and a sister. And it said, Rocky Mountain News, January 16th, 1994. Another decade went by. Vanessa is now 23 and is living in the metro area. Vanessa's family says she has no memory of the early morning hours of January 16, 1984. She's had a hard life, said Larry Large, who is one of Deborah's brothers. My prayers are with her. Rocky Mountain News, January 15, 2004. My name is Vanessa Bennett. Um, my parents were murdered when I was three years old. My sister my mom and my dad, and I was the only survivor. Um, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I'd started searching for Vanessa in the spring of 2018. I quickly figured out she was in Arizona, but actually finding a working phone number or a good address proved elusive for a while. Then a couple months later... Kevin Vaughn at 9 News. Hi. How are you? Every homeless person has a story. I heard the first bits of Vanessa's in that choppy phone call. A few weeks later, I met her in Tucson after she'd stopped at the methadone clinic. We sat down at a picnic table in the late morning heat, the rhythmic buzz of cicadas in the air, as she talked about the wintry night that started her on a course no one could have imagined, and the way that violence has uncoiled through her life. Do you remember your parents or your sister at all? I don't remember anything at all, honestly. People ask me all the time if I remember things, but I don't, honestly. I remember, like, bits and pieces of the last Christmas, but that's it. What are the bits and pieces you recall? Um, like, my sister would scare me and say that, like, the, were like the werewolf is in the closet. Just little bits and pieces, vaguely. When did you start to realize what you'd been through and what had been taken from you? Um, pretty much right away. Um, I was in a coma. My jaw was wired shut. I had tubes in my nose to eat. Uh, I went through like physical therapy. I had braces on my legs. I had to relearn how to do whatever I... We was lucky that I was that young anyway because I didn't lose as much growth, you know, 
you know what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. I do. Um, like I had paralysis on my left hand side, so like I felt handicaps, you know? I read one of the early stories that um, very early on in which one of the doctors said that they thought it was possible you might spend your life using a wheelchair. Yeah. You look great. I mean, Thanks. There must be some sense of accomplishment in that, I would think. But the physical injuries took a toll far beyond the scars. There was damage to the frontal lobes of her brain, the part that regulates things like emotions, problem solving, judgment, and impulse control. I was made fun of in school because my parents were killed. I was made fun of because the hammer man, or whatever you want to call it, was going to come to my house and hurt everybody when I had slumber parties and stuff. I was made fun of for a long time. Shocking sometimes, isn't it, how cruel kids can be to other kids? Yeah. They're very mean. <laughs> yeah. When you think about that now, I mean, that must just be astonishing to think that people said that to you. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, it's um, definitely a lot of the things that I went through have caused a lot of different negative things in my life that later on I blame myself for, that I've done things that have like because I didn't have my father or my mom that has turned to drugs you know I ran away from home um, anything I ended up in a group home you know so I ended up in a psych ward just all sorts of different things that a normal child probably wouldn't go through if they didn't you know go through what I went through there were years of bad relationships and years of addiction. For a long time, I always, there's a few different reasons. Obviously that my parents dying is the main reason I started using, but some of it had to do with, I ran into a wrong crowd that, you know, accepted me for who I was. They didn't judge me, you know? So that was another big reason. It was easier to, to give up my responsibilities as an adult, to play the victim role. It was an easy way to choose that route, you know? And I think that's, you know, I was young, I was 19. You know, I wasn't strong enough to choose my own path or stand up for myself, you know? Growing up was hard for Vanessa, and it was hard for Connie, who was left to raise Vanessa after her family was murdered. As I listen to their words, I think of that horrific night in 1984 as a bomb going off the shrapnel ripping through their lives every single day since. Ninth grade, I would take her to school. She was going to Thomas Jefferson High School at the time because we lived down in the tech center. And I would drop her off at school. She'd go in the front door, go out the back, and go down to catch the bus down to East Colfax and hang out. <laughs> so that went on. So then I had to go drag her off of East Colfax. I don't know why she was attracted to that place except maybe she felt like people down there accepted her more. I don't know, because she had a tough time in school with kids being mean. Through elementary school, they called her Scarface, they called her Hammerhead, those kinds of things. That affects a child. My grandmother, she uh, spoiled me incredibly growing, over, growing up over the years. We went traveling. Uh, when I was in boarding school, I went to Costa Rica, I went to Italy. Um, you know, we go to Georgia, Arizona every year, um, just all sorts of things. And so I think that had part, a part to do with my stubbornness and 
you know, not wanting to do what she wanted, or anybody else for that matter. I don't feel any bad feelings toward Vanessa. I love Vanessa. She's gone through a lot. I was hurt growing up, she was hurt, and I just chose a different path of trying to make things go away. And I've tried to help her down through the years, found places for her to live, moved her. I don't, I could countless times from place to place. Both Connie and Vanessa know that surviving doesn't mean happily ever after. My grandmother, she did the best she could, but I don't think she was equipped to deal with my anger issues. I, I was a handful. I was always running around and getting in fights because people made fun of me, so I just wanted to fight them. But at the end of the day, all I wanted was attention, whether it was negative or positive, you know? I wanted that, that parent figure that, you know, that could keep up with me. <laughs> she told me that when she was a teenager that all she wanted was a family. I said, sometimes a family is just who's there. I mean, it can, doesn't have to be mom, dad. It can be uh, just a mother and child. It can be a, a family. She's a, and I think that's what she was always seeking with these guys, is it's going to be a family. Well, I feel bad for her. My, uh, my kids are my family. I don't have a husband, but I still have a family. So he doesn't understand that. <laughs> For Vanessa, the loss goes far beyond the fact that her parents and sister were taken from her. The man who bashed in her head with a hammer killed the person she could have become. For Connie, the legacy left by that monster is just as far-reaching. There's the reality that the life she might have imagined, soccer games and summer barbecues with her son and his family, was stolen in a senseless burst of violence. There are the images locked in her mind that have haunted her since the snowy morning she walked into that home in Aurora. And there's something else, the pain of not knowing. Why? Who? It's something that's in the back of your mind. You go ahead and do things you need to do, you need to live. And they talk about this, closure thing. I don't know what that is. Um, it, it'll never be closed for me because of what's happened. It's, it's just part of everyday living to know that's what happened and I have to accept it. I don't sit around and cry all day or anything, but it's something that's with me every day. Connie didn't know it at the time, but they weren't alone. There'd been three other attacks that month. One a murder, but they'd gotten little or no attention. I heard Kim screaming, uh, wake up, there's some man trying to hit us with a hammer. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. The original coverage of the Bennett family murders was from former 9 News reporters Bill Britt, 
Paula Woodward, Ken Schreiner, and Neil Brown. There is much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like Blame, The Fear All These Years, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And Blame, Lost at Home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com.